Hey, everybody. It's nice to see you here this morning. <clears throat> you know, uh, growing up in the church, specifically the Church of Christ, I thought a pretty good I thought I had a pretty good handle on how people came to know God and how they were saved. And just to know a little bit about the church I grew up in and those things, I, I hadn't really been exposed to a lot of other churches that were not churches of Christ. Um, but to be fair, the church that I grew up in uh, has always been considered liberal. So take that for whatever that means. When I was a senior in high school, I was uh, invited by one of my friends to go to uh, her church and listen to an African children's chorus. I might have told you this story before. <clears throat> it was a really cool performance, but at the end, something happened that I had only heard about in hushed and judgmental tones. The pastor told us all to close our eyes. Then he said, if anyone wanted to accept Jesus into their heart, they should put their hand in the air. So obviously, I peeked. I wanted to know who was putting their hands in the air. Uh, there was a guy who was sitting about six feet down from me, and there was no one between he and I. And he raised his hand into the air. And at that point when he did that, the inner, the inner senior in high school, Bryce, smirked. I did. I knew, as all Church of Christ people knew, that this was not the way to be saved. That this was not the way to have Jesus come into your heart, that none of that happened until you were baptized. And I knew, somehow, in my infinite wisdom as an 18-year-old, that this guy was not going to cut it. And when the lights came on and we were all dismissed, I, I met the guy, but I mentally dismissed him as a flash in the pan. Now, I'm not proud of that. That was not one of my best moments. And if only God had taught me something and shown me that I was wrong about what I was thinking. Oh, wait. He did. Because about two weeks later, this guy showed up at church the church that I went to. Turns out he was the longtime friend of one of the college students that went to our church. It also turned out that he decided he wanted to get to know God ever since he went to this African children's concert and had heard these children singing about God for the first time. It also turned out that he was one of the nicest people I had ever met. In my life, he became a good friend uh, to me and he studied the Bible passionately. He was at everything almost from day one, getting to know God and getting involved in all that he could. And not long, it really wasn't very long after he started uh, going to our church, he was baptized by his friend. And I knew in that moment with absolute clarity that I was an idiot. <laughs> it's true. But here's the scary part about all of that. 
what I thought should and shouldn't be done almost kept me from experiencing what God was actually doing. And that's a very uncomfortable feeling. Even now, looking back at that time. There is a discussion happening on Facebook right now uh, between a friend of mine who is a minister at another Church of Christ and some other minister from a Church of Christ uh, somewhere across the country, I think. And the argument is about what it is that saves us. One person is arguing that we are saved by grace through faith and that our actions are not what save us. The other is arguing that, yes, we are saved through Jesus, but we are also saved through something called precision obedience, which is not a term I have ever heard before. Never heard it. So see, you learned something today. Apparently, precision obedience is uh, the belief that God calls us to obey precisely. Like what I did there? See how I precision obedience, obey precisely? Yeah. And this is what justifies us or lifts us up in his eyes. And it's going back and forth and back and forth. There will forever be a tension over the subject of what it is that saves us. And you need to recognize that because Paul is trying to help you recognize that as we go through the book of Romans. There will always be a tension between the role of our faith and the importance that we put on what we do and how we interpret different biblical passages about our actions or about who we are or about our hearts. It was a discussion that Paul was having 2,000 years ago. It's a discussion we are still having today. And while Paul may be talking about circumcision to no end or other rituals or things, we are challenged as we read to see ourselves again in this and to recognize or ask the question, what is it that we have raised to be more important, perhaps, than simply faith in God and belief in Jesus? So let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 4. Now, a couple of reminders. One thing you have to remember is that Paul is not trying to answer every question at once. In fact, as Megan put it last week, Paul is really long-winded. He is. Because, or wordy. I think you said he was wordy. Yeah. Um, it, and the reason why that is is because he is painstakingly taking us through this process that he wants his readers to go through. And Paul was a smart dude who knew how to talk to Jews because, surprise, he was Jewish. Uh, If you want to talk, then, about someone being a good example to the Jews, there is no one better to choose than Abraham. So the question that Paul wants to sort of pose to his Jewish readers is, how did Abraham come into relationship with God? What happened? So let's pick it up in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, 
but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who tra whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord never counts against them. All right. So this is an important passage, something where, where Paul is trying to, to swivel this argument a little bit more toward faith. And so the starting question again is, what is it that made Abraham right with God? So let's assume for a moment that Abraham was declared righteous as a result of what he did, which is what most Jewish believers at the time would have believed, that it was his actions that made him right before God. Well, Paul makes the point, if that were the case, he would have had a lot to boast about because he was making himself somehow worthy of God. But that cannot be because Paul has already established that God's method of setting people right excludes all boasting. Why? Why? Why can you not boast before God? Because we are all sinners. We are all lost. There is, who, who does good? No one. Not even one. No one seeks God. No one looks for God. So he's already made this point. So Abraham might have had something to boast about to other people, but he certainly couldn't boast before God because no one can boast before God. So it's not because of his works for that reason, but there's more. He pulls this verse out, which comes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which ends up becoming a very important verse in different parts of the New Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul's argument is that Abraham was made righteous through his faith and not through what he had done. He believed in God, and that was enough for God to declare him what? Righteous to be right before him. Now, why is this verse important? Well, in the book of James, the writer uses this same verse. And do you know what James uses this verse to prove? That your works matter. From James chapter 2, 24, after citing the Genesis text, James comments, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So, the question that we might have is, well, we're struggling with faith and works and how much works matter. Seems like the New Testament is struggling with faith and works and how much works matter. How is it that there are these two applications that seem to be on the absolute end of one another? And how could they both be true? That you are saved by grace through Jesus and that your works help you be justified before God? It's a good question. So let's close today. And do 
Um, this is where uh, context really helps us. Because the book of Romans was written to a different church than the book of the letter from James was written to. And what was the problem in the church in Rome? The, these people were deeply influenced by the Jewish emphasis on observance of the law. So they already were putting a heavy, heavy emphasis on actions. And that actions matter and that actions count. So guess what is the one thing they don't need to hear? That you are saved through your works. What do they need to hear? It is not your works. It is grace that saves you. But for James, the community that that letter is written to, they were having the opposite problem. They had faith, but they weren't following up their faith. And for James, faith was confirmed in Abraham when Abraham followed God and went so far as to offer his son Isaac on the altar. Paul was concerned with the basis for justification, James with the practical expression of that application and conduct. And the two communities needed to learn two different things. Now, let's get down to another key question that Paul is wanting to ask. So he's already tried to establish that it was, it was Abraham believing in God that made him right. And that's how this started. So here's the next question. Can something be a gift if you paid for it? The answer seems to clearly be no. When people work, their wages come not as gifts because they have earned them. And it changes the dynamic of the whole relationship, doesn't it? Because now they have earned their pay, but the one who must pay them is obligated to do so as well because they have earned whatever this is. The spiritual realm, Paul is arguing, is different. In this case, those who do not work but, are, uh, but who believe are regarded by God as righteous. That's a decision that God makes and that he chooses to give to everyone. So rather than attempting to earn God's favor by their deeds, these people simply trust in God. And they are accepted by God as righteous because of their faith. God is under no obligation in this case to say that they are righteous because they believe in him. Instead, righteousness is a gift that God freely gives to those who believe in him. There is no earning people. There is faith and belief in God. Robert Mounts, uh, a biblical scholar, writes, the disparity between legalism and grace is seen most clearly in the way God grants a right standing to people of faith. That God chooses to love and to give salvation. Okay, so that's pretty hard. That's a logical argument. You know, we've gone from Abraham to logic now, and that's a little bit difficult to fight back about that. But if you really want to, like, drive the point home, you talk about David. All right? We're, we're, we're getting to the heavy hitters here. Look at David. David did a lot of great things for God, didn't he? Yes. Um, he also did some things that were not so great. That even, I mean, forget about like 
you know, going against what God wants, he broke the laws of man as well. Abraham was kind of known for his obedience, but David is in some ways best known, yes, for his obedience and his bravery and his faith, but also for how spectacularly he failed. And David spoke in great length in the Psalms about God choosing to forgive us for the things that we do. We've already read one passage earlier, but from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So the point that Paul is trying to make, both Abraham and David were justified through faith. They were not justified through their works, so maybe this whole faith thing is something that you should accept. That it's not a cop-out, it's not a cheap way, it is the way that we come to God. Now, again, because he's talking to his Jewish audience, he has laid the groundwork with these examples, but now he needs to move into, again, the practical issues they are facing. And if you remember, one of the very practical issues they are facing is that Um, the Jewish Christians want the Gentile Christian adult men to be circumcised in order to become, and they're actually holding out as a way to salvation that if you don't do this, your salvation is in question, okay? I can think of some things in our history uh, that kind of match this example. So let's look here at Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, this is, you need to pay attention to this part. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, circumcised was said as a lot within that passage. But it's taking us again back to that basic Jew versus Gentile argument. And since he started out using Abraham as an example, Abraham is the perfect one to kind of push this further. So the the original question, which is something that we kind of talked a little bit last week, is, is all this that God is doing, this salvation through faith, is that just for the Jews or is it for the Gentiles as well? And Paul says, look, man, it's for everybody. It's for everybody. And here's the question that he brings up, which again uses both logic and biblical knowledge. Um, Was Abraham found righteous before or after he was circumcised? Guess what? Circumcision as a part of uh, the promises of God and uh, didn't exist when Abraham was declared righteous. In fact, according to Jewish reckoning, there was an an interval of almost 30 years 
between the time that Abraham was called by God and made righteous by God and God instituted circumcision. So, I mean, it can't be circumcision that makes, that brings someone salvation, right? It has to be, it has to be faith. So what then is the point of circumcision at all? Paul says that it was both a sign and a seal for his people. As a sign, it pointed to something that was happening inside of someone. They had faith in God and they were one of God's children. As a seal, it showed that Abraham had faith and that God had accepted him. Because you see, it's not like God started out this relationship with Abraham by having him be circumcised. And that's the starting point, and then he had faith. No, it was the other way around, wasn't it? He was in relationship with God for a long time before this ever came up. So in Abraham's case, it was the confirmation of all that had already taken place between him and God, and it sealed the covenant between them. Therefore, Father Abraham, Paul concludes, and this is a big deal. Father Abraham is truly the father of all including those who have faith and are not circumcised and the father of those who were circumcised and walk in faith. Okay, um, this is the spiritual equivalent of your mama joke right here, what Paul has pulled out. And it's borderline offensive because Paul is taking an individual who is the, potentially the most important person from Jewish history, and in some ways bigger than David, bigger than Moses. And he says, Abraham is not just yours. Abraham is theirs too. Now, I can only imagine how they would have responded to this point. It's a crazy statement that Abraham is the father of Jewish Christians and he's the father of Gentile Christians. But it really drives this point home that God is the God of all who place their trust in him and walk in faith. And it's not up for you to decide whether it's okay for God to do that or not. Because let me tell you what you don't know. God has already accepted them. You're the one who's late to the party, not them. Their faith is what has made them right. And there's more. Faith comes before the law. Verses 13 through 15. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, this is building a little bit on the argument that Paul brought up in, in chapter 3. But let's make it really simple. There was no law when Abraham walked the earth, but he was still considered righteous. And God promised him at that time, before the law, that Abraham would be the heir of the world. This happened generations 
before the law existed. Therefore, this promise, this covenant, was not given in the context of the law at all. The promise was made almost personally and individually between God and Abraham. And Paul's not done, though. He wants to hit them a little bit harder. He has already pointed out in chapter 3 that the law cannot justify us, that it only really points out how wrong we are. So he says that if you depend on the law, you have effectively negated faith altogether. Because the two can't exist in the same space. Why? Well, for one thing, anyone who wants to can follow the law and never be in any kind of relationship with God. So they can do these things that you do and never really know God. So the point he's trying to prove is that there is no role for faith when obedience is the answer. Reliance on the law over faith essentially removes the heart out of the whole thing. It's not about relationship with God. It's about following the law and being the best you you can be. But again, all the law can do is bring wrath and judgment. And here's the worst part. It strips the promise that God made of all of its meaning. Because God in this case of, of, of making the law the most important thing, he didn't choose Abraham or choose to make a people out of love or care. He, he, didn't, he didn't choose to do this knowing their, their faults and flaws. Instead, God uh, just made the promise because somehow man was owed this, because Abraham was righteous enough. But we know the promise came out of relationship. So if you emphasize obedience to the extent that they are, you are effectively removing the fruit of a faithful relationship between God and man. And remember what Paul said just a few verses earlier, right? Salvation becomes by the one who pays an obligation because you've earned it instead of a gift. And going down that road is a dangerous thing. So finally, it was Abraham's faith that carried him through. And the good news is that faith can do the same thing for us. From Romans 4, 16 through 25. It was Abraham's faith that carried him through. Faith can do the same thing for you. Therefore, uh, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 16 and not what I just said. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, 
he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Okay, let's break this down real quick. The promise that God made to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, and in fact many nations, was foundational to the Jewish identity. This promise made them who they were. So Paul wants them to know that this promise comes as a gift from God. It came through faith. Abraham had to believe in God and had to believe that God would fulfill his promises. So here's what he does, which is kind of a neat trick. There are some, like James, who say, well, Faith without works doesn't exist, and when you look at Abraham, he followed God all the way, even being willing to sacrifice his son, and that proves he had faith, right? But here's Paul's argument. You can't spin it that way, at least for these folks. You can't, you can't do that. Because what is it that Abraham actually did the whole time? He chose to trust God. I mean, so that, it boils down to the fact that he had to trust God every step of the way. It wasn't about him doing all the right things. It was about, can you trust God with all of this? And let me tell you something. That is not an easy thing. Abraham had to give himself up to trust God completely. He had to follow God to places and peoples unknown. He had to wait when his wife was too old to get pregnant for his son to finally come, the fulfillment of his promise, and then he had to take his son on a hike up a mountain and be willing to sacrifice him to God, knowing that this was the way that God was going to fulfill his promises. And he was essentially willing to go up the mountain and kill the promise. Because God must be able to fulfill this some other way. It's tempting to make that an act, a work. But it's not. It's faith. It's faith. I mean, it's, a, it's, an amazing, it's amazing things that he does. Don't get me wrong. But it's faith that makes him do it. It's his belief that he can trust God. Faith is helplessness reaching out in total dependence upon God. And this promise is an act of grace. They flow from God's nature as one who desires the very best for those he's created. So let's recap. Abraham was declared righteous by faith before circumcision or the law existed. Therefore, he was saved by grace through faith. Again, this is something that God chose to do. Faith is the foundation of the things that we do, not the result of a ritual. Abraham was declared righteous before any of those rituals existed. Faith is the heart of the relationship between God and his creation. Dependence on the law only takes away from that. We trust in God and that draws us into relationship with him. God extends the promise to us through faith. 
Because the promises were made to Abraham through faith, they are promises that, that come to us as well through our faith. And finally, we are justified by faith and nothing else. Now, as I said in the beginning, I know you hear that statement and you still want to swing towards James. Well, yeah, we're saved by faith alone and what we do. Can we just get, it's, it's, like, it's like the words just have to come out of our mouths, like immediately. Saved by faith and what we do. And understand something. Paul is not denying or saying that our actions don't matter. But I think he is recognizing something important about those who have been churched for a long time. And that is this. It is way easier, more easy, easiest, it is way easier to swing toward works and action than it is to swing toward grace. It just is. And I wonder sometimes if Christians are afraid of giving too much grace and what that would mean. I mean, we know we're not afraid to be rule followers and to extend that to other people. We know we're not afraid to be legalistic and to argue that someone has to go through this particular path or that particular path. We're not above sitting back in judgment based on someone's experience that is different from ours. We are not above insisting on precision obedience because the word obedience wasn't enough. We're not above all of that. So I wonder, are we afraid of extending too much grace? But what we must realize is that the fact that we are saved through faith by grace is really, really good news for us and for everyone else. Faith is not an escape hatch or a way out. It is a challenge. And in every moment, it requires us to trust God and to surrender ourselves to him. And let me tell you something. We will argue with God about what loaf of bread to get at the store. But God, God is so faithful. He is so trustworthy. He takes us where we are and he says, if you will trust me, if you will believe in me, I will make a way for you. And he whispers to us when we start emphasizing, well, you have to do this and you have to do that. He whispers to us, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. I'm giving it to you. Amen.